Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 941. Uh, hey, in April, I'm going to be performing at uh, Comedy Works in Denver and then also Comedy on State in Madison, Wisconsin. So uh, I'm bringing Mike Furman and April Richardson with me in April. Uh, beginning of April for Denver, end of April for Madison. So uh, go go to their respective websites until I can figure out a way to put all my info on some new website that I'll have to make at some point. Uh, yeah, so come out and see that. Katie, I feel like there's a community corkboard action over there. Corkboard at ID10T.com. Uh, what do you got? I got a couple cool things. Uh, so Zany Do Designs is a site that sells awesome and adorable shirts. It started as a hobby and turned into a full-time job. They have dozens of shirts for men, women, kids, babies, plus hats, pins, bags, and more. They're really silly and fun. I was I, We got sent this, and I was looking, being like, oh, my God, I got to buy my nephew one of these. They're great. They were like, he likes dinosaurs, and uh-huh. they have some dinosaur ones. Okay, perfect. So you can find them at Zany Do Designs, and that's just D-U, dot com. And then Paul Winchell writes, I wanted to send this along as it is for a friend whose dog needs help. And of course, that caught my attention. Of course. <laughs> two months <laughs> so They know is, your language. This is what it says. Uh, this is from a, a GoFundMe. It says, two months ago, my mom unexpectedly passed away, and things have been really rough. In addition to being a single mother... Uh, to me and my brother, she also had three cats, two dogs, and a, and one Muppet-like creature named Molly. Uh, Molly lives in Sweden, where her mom lived, uh, with, with family now. But unfortunately, a few days ago, uh, she received an email from the new owner saying that Molly is going blind and needs urgent surgery. With all the trips back and forth to Sweden, uh, she's not able to, to give any money for the new family. And the new family is having trouble paying for it. Too. So she set up a GoFundMe, and you can just find it at GoFundMe.com by searching Save Molly's Eyes, and that's Molly with an I-E. And they can save her eyes? Yeah, yeah. They said that she just needs the surgery, but I guess it's kind of expensive. Well, how much? I don't know. They didn't say the price Aww. in the email. I know. But they did set up a GoFundMe. Okay. So. And then also, just real quick, if you're in L.A. and you're looking for something fun to do this weekend, uh, the L.A. Natural History Museum is having the L.A. Nature Fest. And uh, it's it's really cool. I went to it last year, and you can buy tickets and find out more info at nhm.org. Thank you, Katie Levine. This episode is Eric Bana, who is promoting his new film, The Forgiven, in theaters and VOD, uh, March 16th. Um, I loved him on this podcast because he... You know, I, I think people know now because of the internet, but he started as a comedy guy. And yeah. then when he came to the States, he like... Was Changed like, it. <laughs> like really jumped into the serious actor, like leading man kind of a thing. So it's, you know, not many people can do that. So it's a fascinating... He made a fascinating jump. Yeah. But uh, he was just really cool, super down-to-earth guy. So Eric Bana, The Forgiven, uh, March 16th. 
And uh, also, this episode is brought to you by Spotify. So I assume if you're listening to this, you probably enjoy podcasts. So Spotify is making it easy for you to stream this podcast and many others on your mobile device, desktop app, smart speaker, whatever it is. Open the app, open Spotify on your mobile device or desktop, click on Browse, uh, then click on the podcast section. You're going to be able to stay thoroughly entertained with any number of podcasts after you listen to this one, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, whether you drive home or whether you're at work or whether you're uh, exercising or public transportation or whatever it is, uh, enjoy your podcast now on Spotify. If you just want to stay in, you know, and if you want to keep everything in Spotify, you can absolutely do that now. And uh, thank you so much to Spotify for, for hosting us. Us and also for uh, helping to grow podcasts. Very, very, very important. Yeah. No, Any a- anywhere that we can add podcasts is great. Yes. Yeah, so thank you to More Spotify. To get it. Thank you to Spotify. And thank you to Katie Levine, who is now about to roll the thing on episode 941 with Eric Bana. Initiating ID10T protocol. Welcome, welcome to the home. Welcome to the house. Thank you. Nice Thanks for having you. me. Thanks for having me. I mean, let's... Can we start talking about... Where are we going to start? Well, What's think, the jumping off point? I think the beginning. We go back oh, to the beginning. Okay. <laughs> okay. Tullamarine Primary School. Yeah. Primary okay. school. We're going to start You've a primary school. <laughs> also, elementary school is, is just for the Americans who St. don't... St. Joseph's, know. kindergarten. Yep. <laughs> but I, the thing that fascinates me about... Your career is how much of a hardcore comedy star you were mm. before really transitioning into, and yeah. I'm sure there were a lot of Americans who, when they first saw you, had no idea. You know. Oh, for many, many years, and I'd say a vast majority still know nothing about my comedy past. When I first came here, it was kind of weird because it was literally like having two existences. I'd like get off the plane and I felt like I had like my little James Bond passport for America. It's like, <laughs> you will leave the comedian in locker number 102 and you will take dramatic actor from locker 104. You know, it was like people didn't know what to expect when they met me because, you know, I'd come off the back of Chopper, obviously. And, but they didn't know about the comedy side. So, and then for many years, then I'd go back home and people were like, what's going on with all this Dramatic shit you're doing, mate. What are you? What are you trying? What sort of swift are you trying to pull? You know. So I always felt like a swindler in both right, both countries. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And and in general, like Aussie dudes are not gonna let you get away with anything. They're not gonna get away for, with anything forever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So no matter what you're trying to do, oh, what do you think you're doing over there? What is that? They, they, I had this old character who was like uh, what we call a bogan, which is like a redneck character who was much beloved and is a this lot Peter? of fun. Is this Peter? Poiter. Yeah. Poiter. Poiter. And, and, and it's almost like they, it's like they feel the need to remind me of Poiter. Almost like, it's almost like a bit of pride, but it's also like, in my eyes, mate. Don't think you're ever going to move on from that. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a – it's very endearing. And, and I, used, I used to get offended and then I just went, no, no, that's actually to be known for, for, for a character you created. I mean, you know how hard it is. Like, so um, now, I just, now I just think it's awesome. You know, for, for a period of time I was like, hang on a second. 
you need to study my films. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but comedy is, I mean, like, to do a sketch comedy show, Full Frontal, for like four years, I think you did that show. Mm. I mean, that is not an easy existence. Like, sketch, like, sketch comedy over and over and over and over and yeah. over again is ridiculous training. Yeah, and I was doing, uh, you know, touring my stand-up at the same time. So I was doing both in parallel, did the stand-up first, then got into sketch comedy, but really found my writing feet in the sketch comedy. And I found I was a lot more prolific in that environment because I just loved having a foil. I love having someone to bounce off. I love having the 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 luxury of like, you know, telling them what sort of set was required. Right. And, you know, you write something on a bit of paper and it would just happen. And we did sketch comedy really well in Australia. Like in, in its heyday, and that was probably the last, you know, really good sketch comedy show that w- w- was that one. And so we're great directors. The crews were phenomenal. We could We could rip off a movie so well, so cheaply. Like we could do looks really well. They were really highly skilled. So it was a really great time. It really was. That's fantastic. I mean, it it really, it's so funny that you got to almost, you've gotten to experience both sides. And it must be interesting to be like, wow, dramatic actors really get treated a lot differently than comedians get treated, you know? Well, yeah, it's true. And it's interesting, the perception thing. Like I've always said that if I had my career in America, it would never have happened because I would have been a guy out of SNL trying to break it in drama. And no one would – well, occasionally someone breaks through, but there's so much baggage there. Um, You know, and when I came here was sort of pre-internet really in terms of, you know, widestream accessibility. So um, I had a kind of clean slate and no one really knew anything about the sketch comedy or if it was too hard for them to find – um, but does that make sense? So, so yeah. you kind of like you do get to sort of start afresh, and no, certainly no audience member is going, "Hang on a second, I don't buy this," right? Because there's no other image of you in their head, right? 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 Yeah. yeah, it's because when you're so closely, you know, like the point of character that you're talking about, when you're so closely associated as one thing, even though you'd think, well, if people really like you, they'd want you to succeed, they'd want you to do well, they'd want you to move on. But they need to own that. Like, they need right, to say, like, right. no, 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 no. you got to be this guy to me now. Yeah. You're, you're, What's you're... comfortable for them? You yeah. Know, and they, and they, it made them laugh. And so they want, they want more of it. They want more and more and more of it. I mean, I still get, I mean it's 20 years. And I still get people saying, you know, you should do something as poet. I'm like, well, it's, it's probably not going to happen. It's, it's probably not going to happen now. You know, I did actually have a crazy thought about five years ago. I started thinking, you could, I reckon I could actually write a film. Uh, you know, for for Poiter. I reckon I could, I could actually write something pretty. And I went, oh, don't be stupid. Don't, mean, don't be stupid. I don't know. Listen, you could you could totally get away with it. I mean, it might just play in Australia. Yeah. If, if internet, although with the internet now, people they must have seen a ton of clips. I mean, there's a ton of Possibly. clips online. I don't. I actually don't think I'd, I'd. You know, in terms of political correctness, I wouldn't get away with the character because oh, gotcha. he could just say whatever the hell he wanted. That was the beauty of him. Um, so I, I don't actually think he would play in 2018. I mean, every once in a while, America gets an Aussie export. You know, like we had Yahoo Serious for a while. We had that. We got some Jacko. <laughs> Uh, we had Jacko, you know, like every once in a while, like one of them popped over here, but it was such a, it was such a specific character. Quirky. quirky. Very quirky. Yeah. yeah. But I, I also want, cause I, I dated an Australian girl for four years and I spent time in Australia and I, and I love it, but it definitely, you know, a, a, America's view of like what an Australian person is, is mm. so, um, 
unsophisticated and unsophisticated yeah. and you know and that's of course those people are there but that's obviously not the full scope of what's over there sure i mean is that is that frustrating in a way or do you find it sort of charming uh it's frustrating in the sense that you know we still well i don't but people still try and sell us that way right um and but in actual fact, we're very European, you know, in a lot in a lot of ways. So it's 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 kind of odd, but I guess we sort of have to promote those things that we think other people are interested in, you right? Know? But um, I don't think it's truly representative of of most Australians. I mean, it's such a it's such a stunning place. Mm. It, I mean, even though. You can't inhabit most of that <laughs> that continent. It is sort of like almost donut shaped in a way because yeah. you don't you can't really go in the middle of it, right? I mean, like no. Alice Springs is just all uninhabitable. Sure, sure. We uh, don't have enough water for everyone. There's not enough water. Yeah. There's not enough water for everyone. We're we're not far behind Cape Town, you know, um, in terms of water supply and things like that. But um, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting place geographically. There's no doubt about it. So when you did you start? You said you started doing stand up. Mm. Did you continue to do stand up through the sketch show, or did you kind of was it just a hard turn and like I'm not going to do this? I anymore? was still doing stand up when I did Chopper. Oh really? I, because you know I was not I was not earning any money as a, as an actor, and I I did Chopper, and I, the film took nearly two years to come out. I was still touring. I was still doing shows. You know, right up until after Chopper was released in Australia. Just to survive. Um, so it wasn't until well after that that I then stopped and then had sort of jumped the fence and didn't look back. But, yeah, I was doing all together was probably about 10 years worth before Damn. I stopped. And then eventually someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, you're too handsome to be a stand-up. <laughs> no, it was that you get to – I, I don't even know if I could do the – tour. it's the touring that does my head. Even if I see photos like now on, on Instagram or Twitter of some of my stand-up mates from Australia who I worked with back – back in those days and who I wrote with in sketch comedy still touring you know similar venues and going to RSL clubs and I'll see a photo and I'll just start sweating I'll just be like oh my god oh, all those plastic seats all those plastic chairs and he's in the corner and the mic's going to be shitty and they're going to have the poker machines in the background and the oh, lighting man. won't be good and uh, yeah so it's that crazy. was some that were some of the gigs. Like what what's the comedy club scene because I've never done I've always wanted to go do like the Melbourne Comedy Festival but I've right. never I've never actually performed in Australia. So what is the what is the stand up scene like there? I actually don't know what it's like I, but I I think touring's always been pretty rugged. You know, I think it really only the the the, the great survive on the road. Right. <laughs> because some of those gigs really are I mean you're really shoved in a corner and it's you know turn the chairs around and poker machines run in the background and all the best of luck. Um, but in, when I started in the early 90s, was very lucky because Melbourne was definitely going through a big stand-up renaissance and it was really popular and there were a lot of great rooms around and that was before they legalised poker machines or slot machines sorry, into the state of Victoria that I live in. And that really changed the live music scene, stand-up comedy scene um, in a big way because suddenly all these venues were like, well, we can't make money out of someone telling a joke. We just... Got to fill this room with slot machines. Right. Um, and that sort of slowly turned around. The government, you know, brought in legislation. They had to spend a certain amount per week on live entertainment. Okay. Stuff like that. So there's not as many rooms as there were back in the day, but it's still, it's still you know, relatively vibrant, but not like it used to be. I mean, yeah, it's – comedy is funny when for people who don't really understand how it works. So they go, oh, just put the comedian over there. <laughs> like, well – 
It does help if the audience yeah. is somewhat forced to be engaged in the show yeah. and not like having to compete with, you know, I'm sure there's just like the drunken louts at the back and the and the, uh, music and a TV's on and the poker yeah. machines like that. That really that's just more like. And also the dance floor. There's, I reckon there is, there's like a sacred amount of space between you and the first audience member. Right. And if it's three inches too many, you're dead. <laughs> Check out, yeah. You're, you're dead. It's like this invisible, <laughs> it's like a twilight zone where suddenly the audience feels like they no, have, no longer have to be involved That's or right. with what you're doing and they're now watching television. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a couple of centimeters difference. Yeah, in those situations, I would always just jump off the stage and just like stand right, right in front right. of people. Be like, I will force you <laughs> to pay attention to this because you really do need, you really do kind a little of bit need of fear. the right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they need to feel accountable and they need to be engaged and they need to be tightly packed together. Yeah, You can't have yeah. people spread out. Yeah, you're sticking your neck out, they need to stick their neck out. That's right. You know, anytime, we're in this together. Anytime anyone at a show feels too much like an individual, you're kind of fucked because <laughs> they, they really need to be a group. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think good um, stand-up comedy promoters, tour managers really understand that. And you turn up to a venue and they would like be pushing chairs forward. You know what I right. mean? Like good, really good people would always understand that because you're right, you turn to a venue and there's like a dance floor between you and, you know, you're doing a corporate gig and there's like 30 feet between you and the first person. Like, no, this is not going to work. Did you do corporate gigs too? Did you do I this? I did, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I did quite a bit, quite a bit, yeah. They're great because they pay well, but they pay well because they They're can hot. be kind of soul-crushing. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going into their territory. Yeah. They're probably being forced to be there and they don't need some guy talking about stuff that they don't give a shit about. They just want to serve their time at that yeah. function and get out of there. There's a great uh, Irish-Australian comedian called Jim Owen who was is super prolific and I worked with back in the day. And I remember him saying, you don't learn your craft at a stand-up comedy venue. You learn your craft in doing corporate gigs. And he was kind of right because basically saying they just it's too easy almost. Yeah. It's almost too easy turning up. Thursday night comedy night at the little hotel. Right. Um, whereas you know it's a, it's a quick and the dead in the in the other involved. Winning over an indifferent crowd. Yeah. <laughs> a crowd who is innately against you <laughs> is a that's a real that's a real feat. I, mean, I, th- I think there's two sides there. I, th- I do agree with pa- partly what he's saying, but I, I I also disagree in a way because I feel like great comic material can only be crafted with a little bit of little bit of love in the room. Right, and right, There's right, a little right, bit of right. wiggle room. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, because you, you are forming a relationship with your audience, so they, they need and to... And your material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you ever miss it? Do you ever think about just, ah, just for fun, I'll go up and do some time, or is it too? would it be too weird to do it now? I reckon I miss it like a retired boxer misses getting hit. Got it. <laughs> so, like, I think to myself, it would be great to punch that bag and hit that speedball and jump rope like Rocky, and then someone would punch you in the head and you go... Oh, I remember that now. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I think, I think I want to do it every now and then. The best thing for me to watch was the great Jerry Seinfeld documentary from a few years ago. Comedian. Comedian. That was just like a real reality check for anyone who's ever given up comedy and wants to get back to just like show. Well, no, like there's no shortcuts. Like it's, it's just you're back to square one. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but you're and you, and you have to be a certain you have to be really hungry for it. And you, you, you can't – I don't think you could do it. Like Seinfeld couldn't still do it if he didn't, if he didn't still have sure. that thing in him. Or even like when, when Joan Rivers was still alive and still doing gigs at 79, right. still had that hunger 
But if you don't have it, it's just like, I don't want to leave the house tonight. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to get out. I don't need that. And just that understanding, you know, I'm teaching my son how to drive. And, I, and recently I said to him, um, you, you think, think about driving, it's similar to stand-up comedy in that it doesn't matter how well you've driven every time before today. When you hop in that car, you can still have an accident. Yes. It means nothing. Whatever you've done in a car means nothing in the moment. Nothing at all. That's I don't care if you're a race true. car driver. I don't care if you've been driving for 50 years. You are still at the mercy of being hit by another vehicle or you hitting someone. And stand-ups the same. It's like they don't care how many gigs you've done. They don't care who you are. <laughs> this you this one played really well a couple nights ago. No, doesn't matter. No, we're starting from scratch. <laughs> but see, that's I think that's kind of where you have some advantage, though, is that – if people don't know you have a comedy background, they wouldn't expect you to be that funny. Right. And so their, their expectations are probably low. My American tour, Eric Banner on, on stage in live in America, beginning, what are we, in March? March, yeah, March. 16. He'll be at the Comedy Works in Denver. You can also catch him at the, the Comedy Store. I mean, it is a, it, 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 the fun thing about doing stand-up is that it's always there if you needed it. If you right. really felt like, you know what, I really got to get back out there, it's always going to it's always going to be it's there. It's always there to terrify you. Yeah, 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 exactly. But when did when you started getting more dramatic roles, um, did it did it kind of feel like okay, I dropped I- that puppy like it was nice <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I hope not. Are they going to find out? Are they going to find out? Are they going to find out who I really am? Uh, no, I'm I'm well, I kind of had to move pretty quick and I also you know, when I came here, a lot of people were like, are you going to do a comedy, are you? Or like, you, you have to go on SNL. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, 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 I couldn't believe I was being given the opportunity to do dramatic stuff. And there was nothing I was going to do to arrest that momentum. So right. I, was, I was not going to take the risk of trying to do the party trick thing. And luckily, I, I, I felt sort of um, comfortable enough. To not sort of try and muddy the waters. Do you know what I mean? Right, Because I right, think right. if I had tried to do that early on, I do think it would have had a had an effect on my momentum. So have you done speak. SNL ever? Never. See, now you could do it. Just let me pitch you an idea, and you can certainly hate this idea. But if you do it now, first of all, you're totally safe. Like, you're, you're, you, that's not in danger of happening anymore, that thing you were worried about before. And... Uh, you could just you could pull Poida out of the trunk <laughs> just one time just as a just as a test to see how people respond to it. The wig no longer exists. <laughs> there and are other wigs. The wig, I Does it nothing. have to be that wig? It's that wig. It's that wig or nothing. You know what? Actually, actually, that may be a lie. I think it's scrunched in the bottom of one of my kids' toy boxes from when they were little. It may, it may exist as like a dead animal somewhere in the house. You're gonna find it, and you're just gonna, you're just gonna put it on, and, just like and there'll be like three Australians in the audience going, "Yay! Finally!" I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. Everyone else going, "What? I think, this is not I, funny." I think it's out there. I, re- I think it's out there somewhere. So when did? Uh, so going from Chopper. Like how did how did Hulk fit into everything? I mean, I don't I don't really remember. Like, was there an was there an exhaustive search for the for that role, or did they? I don't did know. You meet with Ang Lee, or how I, did it... I, I don't know what the background to me getting involved was. I was shooting Black Hawk Down in right. in Morocco, the Ridley Scott film, and when those first calls came through from my agent, and um, I was really sort of on the fence and I didn't think it was what I wanted to do next and blah, blah, blah. And then I actually, I must have come to LA after after that film because I then met with, with Ang and with James Seamus and then I went back to Australia 
and did a little Australian film called called The Nugget, and it was during that time that I that it came about that you know it all sort of happened. Um, so that's the order. So it was it was it was uh, Chopper then. Then Black Hawk Down, mm-hmm. which was my first American film, and then from Black Hawk Down to to the Hulk. Got it, got it, got yeah. it. And also with an accent, your last name sounds like Banner, right? If you throw an R on the on the end of it, yeah, Banner, yeah, Banner, Banner. Was it fun? Did you like doing a superhero movie? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't have fun, but I think that's well, very well documented. Is it? I yeah. don't know. I didn't. I didn't read any of that stuff. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't have a, have a great time. Uh, it was an interesting experience, but no, it was not. It was not a fun time. And so, was that the first time? So that's that. Actually, I think is a pretty fascinating in the sense that you're starting to work more. You're starting to work in America, mm. and then. You know, Black Hawk Down obviously was a big was a big break, but then that's also kind of a big break. So are you starting to feel like, oh man, this thing that I thought mm. it's not everything that it's cracked up to be, mm. or what? What did you learn from that experience? Well, I guess you know, you sort of learn. Okay, I have to just keep seeking the actor's experience. You know what I mean? It was, um, so it was it was kind of different to what I was expecting in a lot of ways, um, but at the same time, I was there to serve. The master, you know, sure. you're there to do your job for for the director. So in in that sense, you're kind of doing what you need to do. But on the other hand, you're sort of going, oh, it doesn't feel like the sort of work that I've done or that I want to keep doing. So then you're just kind of more aware as you're moving forward of choosing things that are that are more attuned to that. And I think that takes time. I think you have to have the the give yourself the license to kind of move around a bit and re 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 jig and. Um, so after a few few films, I kind of worked out, I sort of calibrated what sort of material, what sort of films I would do my best work in, mm-hmm. what sort of films I would be interested in, um, and sort of just fine-tuned that a little bit. Right, yeah. got it. And was there anything that you – because, again, it is so fascinating that you had this whole other career that just existed independently. Was there anything from that experience that – was helpful to this new path? No, I think it made it more frustrating because, you know, you, I went from being a storyteller to then, you know, being, you know, someone else's uh, puppets, not, not the word, I guess, as an actor, but you are kind of. That was the biggest adjustment, regardless of what film I was working on or what character I was doing, that you've gone from self-generated material right. and, and a truly creative through process. It's a pretty fast track from, you know, I conception to to delivery and feedback. Right. So suddenly you're on the slowest train that's ever moved in the history of mankind. <laughs> And you're delivering material that's that you haven't written. So that took me a while to sort of adjust to, for sure. I'm still adjusting to that in some, in, in some ways. Um, and then you work out ways of, you know, uh, informing your work in a more creative fashion so that you're getting that out of your system, but you're not really. So, right. so there is no substitute for writing your own material and, and doing your own work. Um, so that's that has always been something that, that's – taken a, a bit of adjustment but did you in those times did you ever just go write stuff just for yourself to just kind of get the that part of your creative side out yeah and and my brain still thinks as a sketch comedy writer you know i still see the day in four or five sketches that, that you know every time something bad happens on television it's just i still process it like i'm a writer on a sketch comedy show it's like that's how my brain works 
Um, so it does help to still do that. And, and that's not something I can control. It's just how my, how my mind works, yeah. how I observe things. And I think that's, you know, part of what makes my work as an actor easy because that's just what my brain is doing all the time. You know? right. And so it's constantly making decisions on behalf of a character, you know, well, what would that person say next, and what, why are they speaking like that? And um, so I think the two are actually pretty closely aligned, yeah. and that's what enabled me to make the jump. I think from one to the other. Well, that's cool because it. I mean, it's funny that because um, you know the uh, the Oscars just happened, and you know it's like the actor. It's so funny how you know how celebrated actors are, but when it comes down to it, the actor in a film doesn't have a lot of power in t- unless they're like a huge, you know, unless obviously you get to a certain point where you do have some control. But in general, you really are at the mercy of a lot of other things that you can't control, you know, like the PR, how it's marketed, the sound, the lighting, the other actors, the director, the producers. And so, you know, relinquishing control, I would imagine, is you, it's a whole other learning curve. Yeah, I, and I think one thing I learned as I went along was, was um, if it's not on the page, it's not there. You know, this notion that you read something and someone says, uh, you know, don't, it's, it's pretty good. Like, don't panic too much. You know, we're going to work on that. It's, we're going to build it up and it's going right. to be there. If it's not on the page, it ain't there. Because actually it's the reverse. Like, I think once a film is greenlit, so much of that work stops. And it's just the energy gets funneled towards the locomotive. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So that that was that was another thing that, that, that I learned as I went was just like really, okay, if it's not if it's not there when I read it, I can't expect some amazing no actor is so great that they can transform, you know, a boring script into something mesmerizing. Right. I don't, it just doesn't happen. You know? Right, right, right. Um so yeah, I my biggest respect is for writers you know i i it's it's got to be there it's got to be there on the page very few directors i think can you know mega elevate material i think some can do a great job of capturing it and elevating it a little bit but writing is where it's at there's no doubt yeah but but you know as a comedian you have this ravenous little monster inside you that needs to eat up the live the feedback the attention Mm. and so then you start working on film you start doing dramatic stuff are you having to fight the urge to like play to a crowd or not get reactions and stay and stay in a moment because you really you know comedy is you know, there's a lot of fourth wall stuff because you're expecting a laugh or you're expecting something so are you fighting that urge do you were you know did you initially fight that urge to, and to just be able to focus on a dramatic scene yeah it's a really good question um i i think this sounds really weird right but i think i had a i had a sense of what used to work for me and so I would process an idea and so I, I do this now. Like if I think of something that I think is funny and I process the idea and it's almost like I run the sketch in my head and then I sit back and go, yeah, that's pretty funny. Or I go, no, that's actually a stupid idea. And then I just sort of move on. So it's almost like I, I, I have the gig in my head. You do. Got it. Yeah. You, does yeah, that make yeah, yeah. any yeah, sense a- at absolutely. all? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Your brain's still running through the motions and, and kind of occupying its attention in that way. And then you can kind of focus yeah, on Yeah, or I go home too. and I try it on my son, who's a very harsh critic, or my <laughs> daughter or my wife, and it gets a laugh. And I go, cool, I can move on. I did not have to go and make a show. I did not have to go on tour. I got my little bit of feedback. Right. You know, um, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually, it's actually true. Um, but as an actor, yeah, it, it is the, – the, the, the hardest thing for me was um, doing a scene – and then have a director say, um, I want you to try this. And you would say, I just, I just did that. And they're like, I know 
but come and have a look on, on the playback. And you'd look at the playback and they were right. It's like, it's not there, but it was in me. Sure. It's like you've, you've, you've felt it and you've, you, you've, you've done it, but it didn't read on camera as, as the thing that you thought it was reading as. Right, right, right. You know, so that was a, that's, that's a trip when that happens because you're as, as, as the person who's like playing that character, you're totally in the moment and um, doing what, what that character is doing and you're feeling it and all that. But it's just not reading on camera. Yeah. That's confusing. It is, but it sounds very similar to how you can write a joke and then go, fuck, this is really funny. And you go do it on stage and it just dies. Right. You're like, oh, that's, boy, the audience in my head loved that joke. You know, like you really, so I imagine in those instances, you probably just have to trust, you have to work with people that you trust. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and and I take it on board. Like, and I can usually also see it myself. Like if I see playback of, Something it's not. I'd be like, no, no, no. Let me do that again. You know, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, after was Troy next after Hulk? What was it? It was yes, and that did really uh, well. Which was it, Troy? Yes, it was. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And so what? I mean, was th- at this point, are people just handing you scripts, and or, or are you still actively looking for a certain type of thing, or what's happening in your career at this point? I was really, really director focused when I. F- when I first started, still am, but I just, because back in the heyday, back in those days when, you know, almost everything that got sent your way was being made, it was an amazing time for all actors because it was, you know, to some degree it was like a smorgasbord. Like you got sent stuff, everything was being made. It was like a case of sifting through and finding the thing you wanted to do to a yeah. certain degree. Um, I'm very grateful that I started when I started because it's not like that anymore. Um, so... Uh, did I get sidetracked by your question? I'm trying to remember. So, yes, I was very, very director-focused because I figured all the great material goes to the best directors um, and that's who I wanted to work with. So, you know, I went from Ridley Scott to Ang Lee to Wolfgang Peterson. After that, I'm pretty sure was Lucky You, which didn't do great, but it was Curtis Hansen. Um, so I was very, very much focused on, you know, working with the best directors that I could. Are you good at letting something go in terms of – you said, oh, the last one, did, you know, lucky you didn't do as well. Are are you still okay with that as a performer? You go, you know what? I did what I you – know, you can't, can't control too much. Yeah, but you have to – so long as you learn from it. Like, you know, if I look back and I go, okay, well, why didn't it work? Okay, well, was it – was it what you expected to be on the page? Did you have a good working relationship with the director? Did you both elevate it? Like what happened? Like I saw, I, I will, I will do a post game. <laughs> I will do a little post game chat with myself, um, and and you know try and not repeat try and not repeat the same mistake. Try and try and work out which elements lent it to being not great or boring or whatever, and then try and try and make sure you don't make the exact same mistake. Uh, again, are you fatalistic or are you pretty good about? In other words, like if something doesn't pan out as well as you had hoped, are you like, oh god, it's all ruined? Oh, I'm never gonna work again. Or are you kind of like, oh, you know, just uh, pick up and uh, oh, like look, me. I can. I'm human. I can oscillate. I'm generally pretty positive, and I'm. I've always been okay at having a really, really long term view. So I try not to get really myopic about like the you know, the next two months and the next six months and just try and be philosophical about playing the long game. Yes. Because um, I, I actually wouldn't have got here if I, if, if I had have aimed for success. Do you know what I mean? It's right. like 
I, I think just having short-term goals and just trying to work out what's working and what's not is, is what keeps it interesting. But no, I try not to be too... I mean, there are times when I'm going to hold myself or other people to account if I think something's not gone well because someone's not doing their job or someone doesn't care enough. Well, for yeah. sure, for sure. Well, yeah. the long game, I think, is important because if someone can really look at it as, as a large story, the best part is that the ones that didn't really work out well, people forget those. And mm. then they'll just go, oh, and he did this, and he was in this, yeah, and he was yeah. in this, you know? And if something doesn't connect well, it's, you know, it's it's likely that people just forget about it. And they'll just focus on, like, they'll focus on the greatest hits, you know? Right. It's like cutting through a fatty steak. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, I'll just put that gristle aside. And that's another good bit there. That's a little well done on the edge there, but ooh, a bit of medium rare. Yeah. Well, everything is so, I think, particularly when anyone sets out to do anything, they're... Their ideas about success or their, or their ideas, everything's so black and white. It's got to be all this or mm-hmm. it's not this. And it's got, and you know, light, everything is so much more complicated than that. Even when something can be a tremendous success, it doesn't mean that it comes without, you know, downsides or attachments of, of, of sorts. But I, I don't know. Is that, were, you, were you always able to kind of see it that way or did you, did you, did you have to learn that through kind of the comedy stuff? Uh, I think I think I learned it two ways. I think I learned it through comedy. I also married the greatest woman on planet Earth who has just the most incredible outlook on life and people and has really helped me keep a really, really healthy perspective on everything. And I think living in Australia and us never really leaving Melbourne really, really helped. And I also worked out that I, I figured that if I tried to keep the same pace as some of my peers, that I wouldn't last and that I would burn out. So I was really, really conscious of that and, and just tried not, to, tried not to work too much, tried not to constantly be away from home. Um, th- those were the things that I was really, really aware of. But no doubt Rebecca, my wife, would, you know, ha- has had a huge hand in keeping, keeping the needle you know, <laughs> somewhat, somewhat from bouncing around too much. And how long have we been yeah. together? Uh, we've been married twenty years. Damn! Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, so we got, I mean, so we got married in the comedy days, and, but we couldn't foresee all the craziness that was around the corner. So uh, whilst I was in the business, yeah, I mean, fair play. I mean, she couldn't see what was what was nor could I, I and mean, none of us could see what was coming. So, but when it when it did, at least you had someone who were like, "Can you fucking believe that? That's yeah, that's exactly. That's crazy, right? We can pay the gas bill. <laughs> Holy crap! Yeah. What did you What did you think your life was going to be when you're coming off full frontal and probably around ninety six, ninety seven? Did you think like, well, you know, I guess I could just I'll just tour, I guess, or what did you think was going to happen? Um, that's a That's a good question. I never really expected to, you know, have this career. So when I got the job on full frontal, to me that was like. That was like winning five Oscars. That was like, I am on the greatest sketch comedy show in Australia, working with the greatest people. I grew up watching, because the, the show prior to Full Frontal uh, was a show called Fast Forward, which to this day was probably the best sketch comedy show that we ever did. And what happened was basically that group kind of burnt out, decided to move on, and so they just renamed the same show. Got basically. it. Got a new cast in. There was a bit of a handover of the baton from the old cast. In. When I got a job on that show, man, I was I was as, as excited and fulfilled as I could have possibly been. 
So it, it wasn't like I got to there and like, right, I'm just getting started. Do you know what I mean? I was right. like, I was happy. I was like, this is amazing. Um, and so I just kind of like, I sort of just bumbled along and kind of worked it out. And I, I was working with a lot of actors on that show. And I'm like, hey, you know what? There's not a huge difference. I don't think between us and them. Because there's only two or three of us that were comics on the show. The rest were actors doing sketch comedy. Um, so I was like, maybe maybe there's no wall there. Maybe I can smash through there and have a go at this drama stuff because I didn't go to drama school, obviously. Um, so that's kind of how it, how it sort of sort of happened. So I didn't really have a pie-in-the-sky vision. Um, I just kind of set sort of short-term goals and then just kept recalibrating them as it, as it went. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's crazy to think that where you get to this point where you go, well, this is it. This is the pinnacle right here. <laughs> and then in about four or five years like it would explode like way beyond yeah. way beyond what you would have expected but then again what you said before is really interesting yes but in some ways no so like there's a part of your head that's going okay I'm really fulfilled in this way but in other ways maybe I'm not I'm not feeling like it's as a creative outlet um, you know I got to analyze that like how do I how do I re-engage with that part of my brain and how do I um, how do I resolve that within myself and like what sort of performer do I want to be? You know, right. You know, should I be writing, directing? Should I not be doing movies? I don't know. Like, so you sort of, you, you wrestle with that as well. Yeah. But no one ever teaches you. It's like, I, for some reason, no one ever teaches kids. Uh, they, they prepare them like, well, you're going to fall down a lot. You know, life's going to bump you around. But I feel like so few people ever prepare anyone for like, if you succeed, if you get your dream job, <laughs> It can fuck you up in all these kinds yeah. of like you need to understand that it's yeah. not gonna it's gonna feel weird and it's not gonna feel like everything that you had built up in your head this whole time. It's 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 there's still shit you're gonna have to deal with. That's that's such a great point because in so many ways, I think success is way more isolating than failure. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think I can see how people go mad. Because I do think it can create uh you know a, a monster out of out of loneliness you mm-hmm. know I, I i do see i do see how that's possible so i think it's a really really good point you know it's like well okay you know reach for the stars what happens if you get to the stars yeah you know yeah there might not be anyone else up there exactly and then people and then and, and then no one has any sympathy for you you're like well fuck you yeah. you're all, you have money and you what, succeeded what are you complaining yeah. about <laughs> which is kind of true kind of true but at the same time it's all the, the, the opposite that is true you know people do get fucked up and people do go crazy and people yeah, do have trouble coping with it and you know some can do it great and others just you know it's it's not for them so um, it's a really good point. Yeah. Well, for you though, you 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 have it sounds like you're a pretty strong family unit, and that has been able to help you stay tethered mm. and not sort of you know go off the map. I guess for sure. Yeah, I, I think having hobbies really helped. I, I um, great bit of advice I got from Robert Duvall on on Lucky You. We were talking, and and I noticed he had a really great bunch of friends around him, and he had a great wife and. We were talking, and I, you know, because he's like one of my acting heroes, if not m- m- my greatest acting hero. And I was asking him about that period in the 70s where everyone was just dropping off the perch, and, and he was like, Gotta have a hobby. You know, for him, it was horses. You know, mm-hmm. horses, horses, horses. Horses always kept him grounded. And it was a similar thing with me with cars and motorcycles. So I was like, Okay, that's, that's something not to, not to ever dispense with. You know, it's like, you gotta have something outside the business that, keeps things 
I hate using the word real, but just keeps you connected with reality and and doing things and hey there's a lot of downtime yeah (laughs) yeah well because there's so much about the entertainment business that is that seems to be that have substance but it's really kind of empty and so you can really be chasing a lot of empty things and then when you get there it sort of you know vanishes you're like hey what happened i don't feel i'm not not better Mm. you know but to actually have real like you're saying real world things like the, those are those are real things, tangible things that you they can also, focus your attention on. They also really keep you. They actually really do keep you connected to reality in 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 ways that other things can't. You know, like so for me, if I'm working on something, I'm rebuilding something. I've now got to go out to the wreckers. I've now got to go out to the place that's machining the flywheel for my car. I've now got to go and to the gearbox place. I've now got to go and get a universal joint. I've got to go and do all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm encountering people from all different walks of life that are within the motor trade. And, okay, yeah, I walk in, they kind of go, what the hell? And then suddenly you're just a customer at the counter who's right. a universal joint. And now you're just having a completely normal conversation about football, politics, whatever, you know. So, But if I didn't do that, I, where's my access to all that stuff? Right. You know. I can see how people can become really isolated and suddenly you're not having those interactions anymore. Well, yeah. And also, you know, in that when you walk into like an auto parts shop or a junkyard, like you're not the top of the heap. You know, it's like you're, <laughs> yeah. you're like there, there are people who are, you know, way above you in that sense. So it's it's good to, you know, kind of be lower on the pecking order in that way. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how famous you are. You still have to get a flywheel or this or yeah, that. You still got to know what you're talking about. You still have to know what you're talking yeah. about. Because if you... It's almost like if you don't, you're more of an asshole because you're like, this guy, who the fuck does he think he is coming in here trying to do stuff? God, fuck that guy. Put the wig back on. You know, it's like there's almost more expectations. Are you you actually, are you building cars? Yeah, I've got a couple of old things that I'm just always rebuilding or redoing or um, building from scratch or whatever. So, um yeah, it, it keeps me keeps me occupied, keeps my brain ticking over. Is it cla- is it a specific type of classic car? Old, that you old like? stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got an old, really old pickup truck, and I've got an old muscle car. The muscle car I've had my whole life, and I just continue to work on it and tinker away and try and perfect it. And yeah, I'm always you know rebuilding something or, or helping you know mates do their things. Um, got a little workshop that I go to, and when things are quiet, I just you know go in and tinker. Oh my god, it just. The idea that you've – so you've had the same muscle car for most of your life. Yeah, I've had it – I bought it when I was 15 and I'm now 49. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. You know what's incredible about that is that it's – oh, man – that's so that's such a metaphor for life. It's like you it's like you're you know like 15 that's kind of the beginning of your, you know, your hormones have developed. It's kind of the beginning of your adult life in a way. Yeah. You're still you're still a kid but you're you are like becoming a man. Yeah. And so this car is so representative of you you can never stop tinkering you can never stop working and building it's and the four-wheel version of me that's exactly you know, right like the- that's exactly right that's crazy i mean you can you'll have that car for the rest of your life yeah, no, i imagine I can't, I can't sell it no do you no. drive it or do you yeah i do oh, yeah it's great yeah and i race it and i've crashed it a couple times and rebuilt it again and it's like just goes on and on and on and on and it's it's awesome it's really beautiful and lovely to drive and puts a smile on people's face it's it's yeah what does it still need is there anything that it still needs pretty no it's pretty much done i just replaced the gearbox before i came here last week and i'm just about to i couldn't start it before i left so i spent this whole trip thinking about getting back and finishing it on monday 
<laughs> I'll be very happy. I'll be very happy. And you must absolutely personalize that. Like, why are you not starting for me? What else do you need? Yeah, so that's, I'm pretty much done. It's been pretty much done for about the last four or five years, but that was just one little thing that was hanging over my head. Okay, but then how do you problem solve? I mean, how when you're standing over a car and there mm. are any number of things that it can be, obviously you know enough that you can isolate. It's probably this or this or this, yeah. but how do you, how do you problem solve that? Well, because I literally know every single component of the car because the entire car is bespoke. It's, there's nothing left from the factory. Yes. It's a Ford Falcon, but not really. It's just a Ford Falcon roof and panels and right. every other component over the years has been, you know, developed to a, basically a road going race car. So, I literally know every single part in the in the car. So if there's a squeak, I know exactly what I need to do and where it's coming from and what's causing it and what can be fixed and what can't, what I've got to put up with, what I you know what I mean? So um it's 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 kind of like my therapist, really. It's the Ford Eric. <laughs> <laughs> it is the 6 million dollar man in a car version basically. That's great though because yeah. it also again that's a I think being able to maybe it's just part of our our animal brains, but having a real world thing yeah. to build and see and watch. You know, the creative pursuits are great, but it's not as tangible. Mm. But something you can put your hands on and set in an order, and you know, like there's a predictability around this should work if I do this. Like yeah. that's really comforting, and it's a it's an active thing. You know, it's an active thing. I can go for a drive in it. I can drive it two places. I can take someone for a drive in it. You know, it's like. Um, it's 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 something something real, you know? and you can say, okay, you like this car? I, I made this car. <laughs> put that in. You're sitting on a thing. I put it in there. What's your greatest achievement with that car? Do you think? Uh, look, I made a documentary about it uh, about ten years ago called Love the Beast, where I tried to sort of tell this story um, in a in a documentary format because yeah. I come, I realized that it, it had been like a bit of a glue for my whole life in terms of friendship and other things and I so I made a documentary about it and 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 that's been a really that was a in, in terms of like creative output like thinking what do I what story have I got to tell as a storyteller you know so that was that was really really important thing for me creatively and really connected with car people and I get, you know, I'd say half of the people who pull me up now, um, that's what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about the Hulk or Troy. It's like, you know, have you fixed your car and, <laughs> you know, how is it? And, you know, especially in Australia, but outside of Australia as well, a lot, especially in the US and the UK, um, a lot of car people have seen that and that's what they want to talk to me about. It's weird. Has it ever, besides that documentary, made an appearance in anything? No, no. Is you, do you want to keep it out of the business? Yeah. It doesn't have an agent. Yeah, because I was like, no when, are you gonna do, when are you going to do Love the Beast 2? I'm like, no, no, no. No, 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 no. You, you, no, we did it. It's you've good. You've seen my girl. We that's did it. It's good. It's all done. Oh, that's funny. That's really interesting. Like, that's, it, it is kind of, it sounds like it's kind of a private thing in that sense. That you like you when you want to tell the story, it was in a very specific way. But you don't want to expose you don't want to expose her. In she any doesn't other. do porn. She's like it's like you can talk to her. You know you can take some photos, but no, we've got our, we've got our limits. Are you are, do you are you do you like any kind of like advanced automotive technology or is it really just classic stuff? Is there anything I'm you're interested about? in it, but not as a consumer. Got it. Uh, and I've gone I've gone the full I've gone the I've gone all the way to the other end. I've like. You know, I don't like new cars. Now I'm just like, I cannot wait. I cannot wait 
for all these pricks who are on their phones to be in driverless electric cars. Right, right, I, right, I, right, I, right. I'm a cyclist as well. I cannot wait for that. I, I really, I, I thought that was going to be Armageddon. Now I'm just like, bring it on. And you know what? If, if I lived in LA and I had to drive five miles and it was just heavy traffic, put me in one of those little eggshell things that's electric and it's going to just get me from A to B. Yeah. You I, know? I can't tell you how many... We're not driving. We're not driving. We're just, no. we're, we're just shuttling in, in traffic. So I, I've come... Full, I've come full circle on that now. I'm just like, bring it on. Bring yeah, it on. That, that is a good point because I, I feel like I've had a number of Uber drivers. I'm like, could you please not be on your phone while I'm yeah. in the back of your car, please? You know, and it's it's so second nature to people, and everyone's like, oh, I can, it's I ridiculous. can do both. I it's, can do both. It's really frightening, especially on a motorcycle because you're just up that little bit high and you're looking down into cars. It is freaky. It is freaky how many people are on their on their phones and. You know, every set of lights, a horn goes off because the person at the front's not watching and it turns green and takes them five seconds to realize they should be gone. Like, it's just, what are, what's everyone doing? The thing that fascinates me is it's a phone. Call the person. <laughs> <laughs> Call. Well, maybe I'm shazamming a song or maybe yeah. I need to tweet a thing right now. But I, I guess that's the beauty of motorcycles is that you literally cannot text and cycle. Yeah. You- well, even an old car, like my old, all my old cars are... Uh, you know, stick or what we call manual, the minute you hop in them, you, you your brain automatically makes that switch and just goes, well, I'm, my phone's buzzing or, or there's a text coming. I can't look at it. I'm not going to look at it. Like your brain has already made that leap that you can't deal with that piece of information. Right. You just, you got your hands busy doing other things. And I think that's part of the problem with automatic transmission cars is that that's fed you know, people not having much concentration, people vegging out, people just texting, because it's a one-handed operation for most right. people. Right. You know, um, if they're all driving around in a stick shift, I guarantee you they're not. They're not texting. Right. 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 They're not because at the lights they've got to get it in first gear and get keep their hand there for for the change. You know, so that's that's another problem. Did you update any of the? Are you a purist in the sense that? You're like, I can't update the radio. It has to stay the way that it has was. has no radio. No radio? There's no stereo in the car. Oh, damn. Um, yeah. No, I've, I've got three vehicles that have no no sound systems. Is it just that you just like to hear quiet? Or like you just need quiet or you just like to hear the hum of the car? Do you know how nice it is? And when my kids hop in and they realize that that's, that's not happening, I just I see their whole body language change. And they're big now. Like my son's 18, my daughter's 15. But they love driving in the old stuff. And it's like, oh, there's nothing to Bluetooth. There's no button to press. And you can actually see the physical change in, in, in the passenger's body when they realize that there's no buttons to press. No distractions. Yeah. Um, I do want to, as we're sort of like getting into the end of the, 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 the glide down to the end of the podcast, I do want to talk about the forgiven, which is, uh, is a really fascinating story because it's like a hybrid. It's based around a true period of time, but your character's fictional. Correct. But obviously Desmond Tutu is a real person. Yes. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that so people know what it is? Sure. So it's it's around the time, the end of apartheid. And as, as happened, Nelson Mandela set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was, which was a body which uh, facilitated people's stories to be heard um, uh, for, and justice to be brought if someone had committed a crime during the apartheid period, if it was politically motivated, they could be pardoned. It was possible for them to see, seek uh, uh, 
forgiveness and and to be given a pardon so that their crimes they wouldn't go to jail for. But in many cases, people did go to jail. But the idea was that for the country to heal and move forward, that this TRC was set up so that people could be given closure. And the testimonies are heartbreaking and, and shocking and incredible. My character is based on an amalgam sort of of, of a uh, death squad policeman who went about doing things in the name of white South Africa, who's an African, um, white South Africa, uh, during the apartheid period, he's now in jail and Desmond Tutu comes to visit him to talk about the crimes he's committed, assuming that I'm seeking redemption and forgiveness, which I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to infect him with the idea that there will be civil war, he's wasting his time, um, and I, I'm basically trying to get in his head. And it was based on a play. Forrest Whitaker plays Desmond Tutu, just completely disappears into the part. We shot it in... Maximum security prison in Cape Town. Oh wow! Um, we used all of the almost all of the people you see in the film that are in the jail are real ex-offenders, gang members who we basically trained to work on a film. Some of whom deliver incredible performances, um, and yeah, that's essentially what it's about. And so, was it uh, specifically? In this case, do you get the script, or do you get wind of it, or do they approach you, or, or like how did you how did you come to it? Yeah, so I had the script sent to me by Roland Roland Jofi, who's the director, mm-hmm. who also directed the Mission and the Killing Fields, and loved it. Just you know, it was like what every actor dreams of when you read that script because it's based on a play. So much of the film, well, all the film almost for me is being in a visitational room in the prison when. Desmond Tutu comes to visit me and there's a few very long dialogue-driven scenes between the two of us. Um, So I just was pinching myself. I knew Forrest was attached, um, luckily for me, and had been for some time. Uh, And they came to me and said, will you play the part of Blomfeld? I was like, absolutely. And and before I knew it, we were in Cape Town and we were shooting. So it was, uh, you know, very small film, but a very big film in many, many ways in terms of what it's trying to say and what it says about humanity and about forgiveness and especially at a time right now where people are so far apart and these two characters are. They they could not be further apart in terms of their ideals and what they're wanting out of life and what they want to achieve. And is it possible for one of them to move an inch? Oh, wow. So it's a tug of war, basically. It's just a tug of war. Yeah. Um, So it comes out the 9th. Uh, is it wide release or does it start limited or is it, it everywhere? It's a, it's a relatively uh, small release and then it, it widens the following week and then he's on VOD and I believe iTunes as well. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so people be able to access it very, very quickly, um, which, which I think is great. You know, um, I think it's one of those films that you, you just want people to see it. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the Poyta movie, right? And then that's next? <laughs> Straight after. <laughs> I think following serious racial drama with with a bogan from Australia that no one can understand makes complete sense. Bogan is that 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 means redneck. You redneck. said yeah. Okay, good to know. Um, and then lastly, because you've had such a an incredible almost two careers, uh, what have you you know what what are you learning still or what do you what have you what have you learned from all that stuff? You know, every time you come off something, you must mm. you must take away some bits of knowledge. So now that you have some wisdom and you know all these different types of projects under your belt, like what do you what do you what do you think you've learned from all of it? Oh, uh, it's it, it's interesting. I definitely feel like I'm, I'm 
getting to the end of chapter two. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And 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 chapter, I think there's like a rejig for chapter three. I think I think most people are at that point because the industry is so different, and you have to self generate, you have to think differently, you have to be open to doing different things. Um, so I, I I feel like that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. I feel like there's a third chapter that that needs to sort of unfold. That could be a mixture of different things. Do you ever think singing, dancing? I mean, it's time. My friend Hugh, stand aside. I mean, seriously, Hugh Jackman, dance off that Oscar yeah. stage, make room for Bennett. Oh yeah. See, like you, you totally could host an you could host an award show. Wait a minute, I couldn't host a pie night. Come on, uh, yes, couldn't. you could. No, no, no. You absolutely could. Not for me, Chris. All right, you, 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 the training is in your gene. It's in your blood. No, I was never, I was never a great MC. You know, you, you have to, you have to pass that baton when you're in the stand-up circuit. Yeah, of course, yeah. you go through the MC thing. I was, it was okay, but um, no, it's not, it's not in me. Have you ever been in? Have you, have you been in situations where you start wanting to crack a joke and you feel like, no, I need to be serious, Eric. I can't. Um, so many of your questions are so damn good. Um, <laughs> no, it's so funny because I always feel terrible after I've done tonight shows. Oh, really? Always. There's zero. There's zero um, post tonight show format euphoria for me because I always come off feeling like uh, should have been better, should have been funnier, should have. And it's like because you're still viewing things as a as a comment, and then you're going, no, no, you're there to talk about a movie. You're there to talk about something serious, like yeah, you know, there's light moments, but that that I always still find that hard. Still find all that stuff hard. It's probably better not to take big swings too, with the context of that, because if the audience, if yeah. the the audience always needs a little bit of context, yeah. And if you just if you come out swinging hard, you know, they they, it, they might be a little off put if they don't know that about you. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely learned that early on. I learned two things. A for the first 10 seconds, they can't understand a word I'm saying. <laughs> and they're calibrating the fact that I'm Australian. doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. And the second thing is that they actually they're not real. It's kind of like that stand-up thing. It's like they're not yet ready to receive a joke from you. Right. So there's no point wasting anything in the first 30 seconds to a minute. Because yes. the brain hasn't really recalibrated yet that you might even possibly do something like that. Do you know what I mean? So yes. I have learned that over time. So I've, I've had to explain to my son who just like is always completely ashamed that, that I haven't done enough impersonations or, you know, like <laughs> being as stupid as I am at home. And I'm like, but they don't really know that, you know, it's okay. It's, it's different, different beast. I, I, um, I got to present at the Emmys last year and I was at, I was really stressed about it because I'm like, I'm not doing anything funny. I'm not, I can't right, figure out how right. to, and my manager gave me the best advice. He goes, just don't get hurt. <laughs> In other words, like, don't t- you don't need to take a big swing. You just need to not get hurt. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. It doesn't, I mean, yes, I would love to come out and tell a joke that lights Kill. that audience on fire because, yeah. wow, what an ego, you know, Nicole Kidman sitting in the front row, like right. what a, and then when I, when I got real about it, I was like, I couldn't think of anything. I'm like, you know what? I just need to not get hurt. Not take a bullet. You get do- off and just, yeah, it's really, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, because you just say to yourself, I've got to do something here. I've got to, got to, got to, got to, yeah, got to land one. But sometimes it's just <laughs> not, it's not, not reality. Sometimes it's more important to not whiff one <laughs> than it is to take yeah. the risk to yeah. it's like really learning like not every time do you have <laughs> to try to knock it out of the park because it's not always it's not always going to work yeah and those award shows are the hardest oh, i can't imagine no yeah 
But even though, like, even at the Oscars, where it's just like everyone's just, it's you know, there's a lot of seat fillers at those award shows, and people yeah. are just thinking about them their own thing, and they're not. The best thing you can do is be quick. Just be right? quick, really. Yeah. What everyone wants more than anything else is expedite that thing. Yeah, exactly. You know? Let's get you in and out of here. <laughs> it's not going to be a four-hour show. But um, well, this was really delightful. I appreciate you coming in and talking, and you know, and who knows? Maybe your chapter three. It's maybe it's a return. <laughs> Maybe it's a return to hardcore comedy. He's not going to let this go. <laughs> I just... It's, Chris will not be satisfied until you know he why? sees me dying on stage Not somewhere. at all. It's just, it's just that it's such a difficult skill to cultivate. And right, you right. did. And it just feels like it's just there. Yeah. It's just there. It's always there. But it's still so far away. It's, it's there, but it's so far away. It's, it's like away. it's like that audience member on the other side of the dance floor. There's still know, the dance just, floor in between you and There's that. a big dance floor. There's like a ballroom. There's like Eric, a ballroom, and some people standing outside the building somewhere. Well, And, and, and then when we wrap this up, maybe if it's not too forward, you'll show me a picture of your car. Do you, oh, show, yeah. do you show a picture of your car? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, on my American phone, I'll try. Okay. You do great. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, Call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.